As you turn to the second chapter of the book of John, we read today of Jesus' first public miracle. Um, This is held across uh, the Gospels that this is the first time that Jesus did something publicly. Although, only a small group get to know and understand the miracle. All benefited from the miracle, but only only a few really knew what was happening. He's invited to a wedding that perhaps was because of his mother. You know, how many times have you been invited to something? You know, the, well, they call that plus one. You, you know, somebody, you go with somebody, you don't even know the couple, but that doesn't happen much in 38 years of marriage. Our plus one or each other. But, I mean, usually you, those who are single might find somebody to go with them. But here he is invited because of his relationship, maybe because of the community. In fact, you know, these were community-wide events. And he goes and shows up. With these five guys that he's picked up following him in the earlier chapter. There are some commentators that say the reason they ran out of wine is because Jesus and his disciples showed up. (laughs) Now, I mean, that, that is funny, but think about it. If you showed up at a party that your mom told you you could come to, you brought five extra people with you, they ate all the pizza, they ate whatever, they drank it all up, what's mom going to do? She goes, hey, why'd you bring them jokers? And in Jesus' case, they've run out of wine. So here we have him um, being asked to do something at this wedding, a, a wedding that he didn't even bring a wedding gift to. But he becomes the gift for each one. And he bestows on that crowd a gift that will give and continue to give throughout eternity. And it is a gift, the best gift that you and I will ever receive. So um, let me read John 2 verse 1. On the third day, I've alluded to this multiple times. This third day, let me tell you about three different ways that commentators look at it. It could be the third day he's with these disciples, with all five of them. It could be the third day that I think Ed and I were talking Thursday, how far it was from where he was baptized to where this wedding happens. It it was at least a two-day journey. It could have been referencing since the baptism three days. It could be, as John talks about, and as we know, it was on the third day he rose from the dead. And there are even ministries called third-day ministries. I like all three of those. I take all three of them. And I think each one has an element that adds to it. But on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, We'll talk about the way he addresses her. King James, some of the other translations, make it appear that he's being rude to his mother. He's not. Dear woman, why do you involve me? It's like, Mom, what's this got to do with us? You know, it's not my brother. It's not my sister getting married. My time has not yet come. And anticipating that requesting something of the Son is going to happen. He doesn't, she doesn't hear him say anything. She tells the, the, the servants in verse 5, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think that's an, a, a takeaway that a lot of times we lose out on. She knew he would do something. Nearby stood six stone water jars, 
the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet would not really necessarily be uh, the bridegroom's father. It was basically like the MC, the person who's organizing the party. He's like, I guess you could even say the wedding, what do they call them these days? The wedding coordinator, wedding host, what, yeah, the wedding planner even, who knows? Yeah, I know that's a movie too. Now, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom, so obviously he's called over the one who is responsible for the party, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The Greek actually says, into him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at a familiar passage, and it's controversial, as Baptists we, as a denomination, abstain from drinking. Perhaps the statement is stronger than our practice. And if that bothers some, let it bother them. Because there's a deeper meaning today than the sin of alcohol. The meaning that Christ changes the old ways and brings in the new way. That from ceremonial washing to the living water. From that who has a need, that he sees the need, and with his grace, he bestows upon them more than they could ever imagine. That's what we need today, Lord. 180 gallons of grace. 180 gallons of mercy and forgiveness. Help us to think of these things as we look at this passage today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Any of you still have the dishes and the knives that you got when you got married? Some of you, yeah. I've told this story before, and it, it comes to mind. It's, so, it's my most precious wedding story. I did a retirement of two master sergeants, a husband and wife, when I was stationed at, at Barksdale in uh, the Barksdale Museum, which is an interesting place right near all these static displays. They had a little gathering room, and I thought, strange place. And uh, they had this wonderful retirement ceremony, and they began to talk. And they kind of did like a dueling preacher thing, you know. And uh, they talked about the wedding dishes that they had gotten when they first got married. They didn't get any. So they went to the airman's attic, like the thrift store, if you will, like the Salvation Army, all the freebie stuff. And they took home dishes from the thrift store. And they reminded their kids who were sitting there, that on occasion, even though now they were both very successful senior NCOs and retiring with decent retirements and had new jobs to even go to, that they brought those old dishes out every so often to remind them how it was and where they came from. So I've got old dishes. Actually, I think we have a few 
pots and pans. We may even have a couple of uh, Pyrex dishes. Uh, what's the, what was, there's one, I can't think of the name of you call those. Corningware, yeah, the corningware ones. How many of you got corningware at the house? Yeah? Okay. Well, and how many of you have ever struggled with what to get somebody that they're going to keep? Not me. I don't get them anything. I just show up for the wine. Pierce, be quiet. <laughs> Seems like whether there was a wedding in Cana or that wedding I mentioned in Connecticut or even if you had one over here across the street in Old Town of Lotus, couples are vulnerable for public embarrassment, whether it's our own actions or something that happens. I mean, from the minister messing up to the bride, you know, was dressed doing something wrong. And as we look at this chapter, this begins the first of two sections that compile the end of this book. Chapters 2 through 12 and then 13 through 21 are two basic sections that we're going to look at over the courses of these weeks to come as we look at the Gospel of John. And in this section we read today, Jesus has taken the old and made all things new. In our reading, we see him taking purification urns, if you will, and turning them into the wine of the new kingdom. And as you consider wedding gifts today, I think it's only fitting to consider the wedding gifts that you wish you had gotten. And to get your thoughts going, here's a little, you know, I've got to give a little eye candy for those who like videos. Here's a little video of the top things that we buy. And if you want to say, I've got that or I bought that, go ahead and say, or applaud when the thing comes up. You guys got a little video clip to play? Okay. What are best gifts? This first thing that comes up, I have no idea what this means. Oh, it, it skipped. Good. What are those? How about those? Barbecue? Anybody ever got those for a wedding gift? Knives? We had that same kind of block. I remember that. Threw it away. Dishes? Glasses? You break those? Okay. We got one of those, but not for a wedding. Those were not invented when we got married. Are that spices? Had a spice rack, didn't we? Yeah, wouldn't we? Those were not invented when we got married. those mixer things. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I've ever bought this. What is that thing? Fryer. Those are cool. We bought one of those once, but not for a couple. Some kind of celestial calendar that you got married. Yeah, five, yeah. Some of you just clapping. You bought towels. All right. Everybody needs towels. Yeah. Oh, precious moment. Is that what that is? More power! How can we get power tools when we got married? <laughs> Speakers were now out here. Thing. Pure water pitcher? Okay. That's it. I don't know. That was the best one I could come up with, and it was the shortest one. So, um, do you remember old-fashioned gift registries? They still do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, how many of you have walked into the jewelry store where you live, and that's where you signed up? My hometown, that's the way you did it. I think that was the only one. Uh, nowadays, they have Target Registry. Uh, I mean, there's Tie the Knot. You know, there are things that will prepare everything. And one of the things that couples put on there are their must-have items. Anybody? Anybody still awake? Okay. Well, 
These are things that you must have. And for Mary, that day, the must-have was this wine to help the groom avoid public embarrassment. Now, if you ran out of food at your reception because more people came than were invited, you'd probably say, hey, it's your own fault. You know, that's why people do head counts. That's why they do RSVPs. Uh, many people spend a lot of money on weddings these days. I know that uh, we kept track, or actually my whole family kept track. There was a little log book, what was being spent. And I remember there at the wedding reception, there was cake, there were mixed nuts, and some buttermints, or whatever they call those things, and punch. Remember that? Yeah. I'm looking at my mom, and remember dad got mad at somebody at Kroger's because they didn't have the right kind of sherbet to go into the... Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, is it, it always rolls downhill. Mom was mad, therefore dad got mad, therefore it had to be done. But it would be an insult in Jesus' day to run out of drink or to run out of food for a festival that would include perhaps everybody in the community. It would, imply, it, it would be such a disgrace that if you lived in that community, they would always remember, oh yeah, you know, whatever name you want to use, the Perrys. They were the ones who ran out of drink at their wedding. And I had traveled so far. I had taken time off from my job. And there we had to go dry. Well, Mary, knowing as if he is going to do something already, she asks him or tells him they've run out of wine. She wanted help. Now let's pause for just a minute and talk about wine. <clears throat> That's probably the elephant in the room, and I brought the elephant in the room today. Well, a friend of mine brought it in here. This is not a beer barrel, as I was asked when I came in. This is a wine barrel that uh, Mark actually can make some beautiful furniture out of. The interesting thing about a wine barrel, if you don't know, these are oak, right? You know what they are? Yeah. Is that what they make whiskey with, too? Uh, just seeing if you knew. I don't know. But you see what the insides look like? How the wine stains it? This one holds, uh, it actually says 59 gallons. Do what? You'll have a glass. I know you would, but it's empty. Um, and, of course, that would be the miracle if, I could fill, if uh, you'd ask the Lord to fill it today. But if you can go back to the Scripture, there were, there were probably, well, there's no probably, there were six, and they were probably somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So it would be like having three of these. And as Baptists, you know, the first miracle involves drinking. And a lot of us have a, a lot of problem with that. You know, we as a denomination have abstained and advocated. In fact, I have it for you. I think I, I put a cut and paste here in my sermon notes. In 2000, as recent as 2006, at the Southern Baptist Convention, the discussion focused on the casual or limited use of alcohol. And ultimately, the resolution is this, verbatim. We, the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention, meeting in Greensboro, North Carolina, June the 13th through the 14th, 2006, express our total opposition to the manufacturing, advertising, distributing, and consuming of alcoholic beverages. Now, some of you say, it's ironic that our Savior takes what a Baptist would have considered sinful and makes it into a miracle. Why would he do that? In abundance. 180 gallons. 
nearly 3,000 glasses of wine, if it's an eight-ounce glass. Let me say that at the time in which Jesus performed this mission, this miracle, this mission to his wife, his wife, his mother, it may have been safer to drink wine than it was water. At our discussion, we kind of do a little pre-discussion sometimes on Thursday mornings about what I'm going to preach on. And Ed said, well, you ever, when he lived in Turkey, you couldn't drink the water. I said, when I was deployed to Turkey, you couldn't drink the water. Now, I didn't drink wine to compensate, but we had bottled water. But in Jesus' day, there wasn't Perrier. There wasn't, uh, what is that, e Volk? What's the one you like, Brenda? Volvic? Vol something. Huh? Not scotch. No, I didn't say that. Yeah, you know, all these bottled waters, you know, there's, you, you can get the ones I buy when I go into the gas station or the like the 59 centers or two for a dollar or whatever. She'll come out with, or Avion, you know, it just sounds classy enough. The $4 bottle of water, not wine, bottle of water. So let me say this. Wine is not evil. It's what we become when it alters our behavior and our witness. It often becomes the detour that leads to the path and the way of destruction. And also, in Jesus' time, wine did not carry the stigma that drinking carries as an American. I mean, we come out of a tradition that the nation had an amendment to stop alcohol and had to repeal that amendment. Prohibition, anybody? You know, I don't know. Yeah. We, we have a problem with people who drink and drive. We have a problem with people who allow alcohol to destroy relationships, destroy families, and take life. Jesus took what might have been unpotable water and turn it into life-giving drink. So why did Jesus do that? Because his mother said, they're out of wine. And the guests were expecting something. And I believe that Jesus had compassion on them all. Of all the miracles, like Augustine writes, Jesus did in the snap of a finger what takes seasons to do. It takes seasons from the rain to fall on the grapevine and the grapevine to grow enough to produce a grape and for people to come and collect and crush and pour them into bottles and let it age. And Jesus, by saying, take the water and draw from the water, in a moment, he took what took seasons and in a miraculous way made the best wine that the steward, the MC of the event, had ever tasted. He revealed what John says in chapter, in verse 11, he revealed his glory and his power. Foremost on our list of must-haves is Christ's compassion and his grace. That's what you must have. Not the latest Keurig or the latest set of knives. And I read a sermon this week, and I alluded to it in the prayer that I opened up with, a sermon called 180 Gallons of Grace. 180 Gallons of Grace. And let me read to you just a section. There's 180 gallons of grace for you and 180 gallons of grace for me. 
Even when you think you are never kind enough, never good enough, never loving enough, never prayerful enough, never spiritual enough, always too selfish, yet there is 180 gallons of grace for you and me. By contrast, the law of Moses and the religion of the Old Testament is 180 gallons of religious laws and religious duties. It's a law of duty and a law of obedience. Go to church, give your tithe, give your alms to the poor, observe the fast, say your prayers, more than 600 of laws to obey. Guilt, guilt, guilt. You're never good enough. You're never able to obey all the laws. Never as good as Jesus. Of course, none of us ever will be, but always falling short, always reminded that you need to do more. Offer more sacrifices. Atone for your sins or at least try to. Do a good deed. Try it a little harder. Shape up a little more. Guilt, guilt, guilt. There's a ton of guilt. And then you wallow in a deep, muddy puddle and feel that's where you belong. But Christ turns the water, the guilt of sin, into forgiveness. And like water into wine, he has compassion that pours his grace over our heads, over our hands, and over our lives. So going from washing your hands to washing you through and through. I might have told this story here in the past. Um, Don and Gloria Taylor were the first Air Force chaplains couple. She was an Assembly of God and he's a Southern Baptist. And after like 20 years of marriage, I heard them say, he's become more Assembly of God and she's become more Southern Baptist. But they did not have children. They were married a little bit later in life, and they adopted children. And they arrived at RAF Lakenheath when I was there. He went to Milden Hall. She went to Lakenheath. And she was my immediate supervisor for a while. And they adopted these two children. They'd come from stateside with them about two years. And, of course, because, as you know, if you don't have children or your children are grown, you, you acquire different things than you would have had when you have little ones in the house. And she had a... Curio cat, I think that's the right word. One of these cabinets, glass cabinets of all these things. And I think I have a picture of one. And I probably mispronounce it. It's L L A D R O. I, I say Yardro. That's probably wrong. That one's $1,000 right there. She had a cabinet full of them with the lights on it that she had acquired. You can get them overseas a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier. And she'd been stationed in England and Germany and different places. And she had all these. And I just remember her coming to work one Monday. And telling me that her son, that she, as I said, she had not had him very long, maybe two or three years, had climbed up on that cabinet in base housing and turned it over on himself. Thereby shattering the glass of the cabinet and the statues, little you know, ceramic things inside upon him. And I said, what did you do? And she was kind of hot-tempered. I mean, I made her mad several times working for her. Um, she said, I ran to him, and we, Don and I lifted it off. And the first thing I said is, you okay? Are you okay? He goes, yeah, and I'm so sorry I broke all these things. He says, she said, that's okay. I love you. I forgive you. Are you okay? I'm, I'm, I want to help you. And it's that same type of grace that God offers to us. We expect this guilt, this, this burden that we can't lift, and we keep trying but the thing you need to have, the most essential thing, your must-have list, is his compassion, his grace, his mercy. Hearing him say, you're okay. I know you messed up. And you're going to mess up today. You're going to mess up tomorrow. 
There's somebody going to cut you off coming out of the church parking lot, and you're going to honk the horn. Give them a universal hand gesture. Hello. Yeah, it won't be that way. Jesus says, I love you. I forgive you. Now, the second area of gifting on those online websites is already purchased. I tried to do this the other day for my wife. I tried to buy something online for a shower she was going to, and it clicked and it said already purchased. And I think part of it was my own failure because I bought it, and then I went back at it and looked at it and said you bought it. So, I, I, you know, but if you've ever done that, you, you, you know, these people have these lists, and you, you, you know you only want to spend like $5, but the things that are left are like 2000 well, I'll buy them a baby stroller. Well, it's five hundred dollars. I ain't buying that. Yeah, you know, where's the socks? You know, nobody wants. Where, where's the tea bags? You know, I, I'm not gonna buy the teapot. I'll buy the tea bags. You know, so you're looking at those kind of things, and your mind goes like that. The the price range that you have, and let me set you straight, or let you, let you on a secret. Jesus at this wedding already knew that the cross was waiting for him. He tells his mother, my time has not yet come. And he knew that by doing this miracle, it might expedite, it might rush the crowds to his side. So I think he did it in a very strategic way, if you want to use that word. He, he did it so some would know, but not everyone would know. And then the blessing would be for everyone. But that gift, that thing that was already purchased, was him coming for you and I. That through faith in him, we might have life everlasting. We cannot atone for our sins. You cannot get all the mud out of your heart and out of your life without Christ Jesus being that holy water, that living water that restores your soul. Check out these servants for just a second. I know I've probably spent too much time on the first point, so I'll try to get through this. These servants... <clears throat> Verse 7, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet turned to, to, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. You can be just like those servants. You should be just like those servants. You know of the blessing of forgiveness. You know of the joy of grace. You know the taste of the love of Jesus. And these servants this day, it looks like they kept their mouth shut. I don't know. Maybe they did spread the news. Hey, Mary's boy over there made this wine. I don't know. You know, to, to, to add to it is to, to probably be on thin ice. But I tell you today, you can draw water. Not from that, not from that wine vat but from the living water that throws, flows through us because of our faith in Jesus Christ and offer that up to someone else because you can say, this is what changed me. My faith in Christ, his grace has changed me from the way I was to what he wants me to be and I'm still a work in progress, but every day he restores my soul. Every day he forgives me. Every day his grace is sufficient for me. It's already been purchased for you and I. You can be a waiter as well. You can also be a disciple. And I think that, as many preachers will pick up on, this simplistic miracle. I mean, it's not really simple, but I mean, it's a simple, short thing. He makes people be able to drink wine. 
But verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples, as I said earlier, put their faith into him. Now, where do you place your faith today? I'm going to go out on a, a limb and say that most of us, our, our faith has been invested in Christ, but not fully invested. I'm not a big investor, I'll tell you that right now, but I understand what little I do. That if you have a portfolio, it should be spread around, you know. If you invested in, I don't know, whatever, and it went down, you want to make sure you've invested something else. That way it stays solid or maybe it goes up higher. But when it comes to investing in the Lord, you need to be all in. And so many times, we're just partially in. We just want to sip the wine, if you can use that illustration. You don't want to bathe in the wine. You don't want to allow yourself to be totally changed. Because to do so implies that you're going to be that servant. You're going to be that one who offers up that forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it. Because you have been forgiven and you didn't deserve it. So as we get ready to have a time of invitation today, consider the must-have, which is God's grace and forgiveness, which comes through Jesus, and that which has already been purchased because he's already done all the work for you. You have to simply believe, confess, and follow him. Stand with me, please, we pray. Lord, as we come now to a time of invitation, we've looked at this miracle and how it challenges us, not on a temperance message, but a message that says, be fully changed. Just as the water was not partially into wine, it was not a diluted wine, it was the best wine that the master of the ceremony had tasted. And Father, today, we want to be fully immersed in you. Help us to commit ourselves totally, to invest in you, our actions, our lives, in following Christ Jesus. And if there's one today that has kept something back, they've been holding back, I pray that this would be an invitation that they would come forward and kneel or, or talk and pray and say, Lord, take that which I'm holding back and use it for your glory. Whatever decision your people have to make, let your spirit move right now. For we ask it in Jesus' name.